Hello and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. I really cannot emphasize how much we have to discuss this week from pro football, college football, uh, a little bit about brief stuff about the NBA and a little bit about the NHL, most notably the Winter Classic. But I begin this week with uh, Happy New Year, by the way, too. Uh, I begin this week with some really unfortunate news that we heard before the very end of 2021. Lord knows how difficult a year that was already. And then we heard some news, uh, some really difficult news that, that Betty White had passed at the age of 99, less than a month shy of her 100th birthday. Now, I know this is not sports news, and, you know, we've talked about death before on the show. We've talked about the deaths of specific people on the show before. And usually I can find a way to tie in sports, uh, or, or, well, this goes for death, and this goes for, you know, people who are retiring either or or moving on from, like, you know, I did the thing about Conan O'Brien because he was ending his late night show. But part of that is me just trying to celebrate the people I enjoy and make me happy. Because, I mean, you know, I try to appeal to people, but I try to appeal to myself. And, you know, I, I could find a, a sports tie-in for most people, even a number of people in entertainment. When, you know, when I, For example, when I talked about Norm Macdonald, he had done sports show and he hosted the ESPYs and he, had, and he made fun of OJ a lot, which is hilarious. Uh, Betty White I, is not really one, but I, I just bring this up because Betty White was perhaps the most un- perhaps the most beloved figure in the history of civilization. It's absolutely true. Maybe the most loved person in history in the history of civilization. Because if you think of you know some. Uh, religious figures, if you know, if uh, human, they, they can be divisive. Not a lot of pe- not always people believe in that. You think of uh, political figures. Not all political figures are beloved. Uh, entertainment and maybe, but sports even is not really a place where all figures are beloved because not all people are into sports. But in terms of film, television music, that's a place where we, we can probably find the most commonality. And television, especially in America, is a near-universal medium. And Betty White was perhaps the queen of television. Well, I mean, what... and. When you talk about Betty White in particular, you think about someone who actually really did... It's not that common that you see someone in the public eye for as long as she was. She had done... uh, Of course, had been... uh, Had such a resurgence in the last 10 to 15 years, most notably with that whole... With the, I think really it started, apparently it started with when she was in the proposal, Sandra Bullock and Ryan Reynolds, although I thought it started more with the Super Bowl ad she did, the Snickers ad, which is a great ad and also features another very 
uh, beloved, although I would say much more underrated actor in Abe Vigoda. If you don't know, I, I can't imagine you don't know that commercial. It's a great commercial, but it helped shoot her back into uh, fame, the likes of which probably even exceeded her time, uh, her fame when she was on the Mary Tyler Moore show or on the Golden Girls. And I really culminated with her hosting Saturday Night Live at age 88 and a half. I would have to, I believe she is the, she's got to be the oldest host in the history of the show. And still to, uh, even in the last few years we had known her still all there, smart as a whip, because, you know, even the, uh, even people in older age who are still fairly uh, lucid, I guess, uh, can you know, lose something mentally. It's just natural. It's just it's just a, a part of life. Betty White was for many years still as still had as great a, a sense of comic timing as anyone, and a good sense of memory. Nobody. I'm not sure if there's anybody who can make you feel happier or more positive than Betty White, and that's probably because. In small part, uh, she is a reflection, she's what uh, we would hope to reflect upon us in a long, happy life in old age. Um, she really got better with age, honestly. I, look, I am younger, so I, I couldn't, I wasn't alive to see her on the Mary Tyler Moore show. I've watched a few, episode of the Gold, few episodes of the Golden Girls, and it is great, but <laughs> it, she's one of the few people who I think got more famous and more beloved uh, closer to the end of her life. And, and I'm telling you, I watched uh, NBC reran her episode of Saturday Night Live the other night, and it's really still st does still stand up as one of the funnier episodes, one of the funniest episodes, I think, in the history of the show. The last, the, the last sketch... Seriously, some of the some of the best SNL sketches really come at twelve forty five, twelve fifty at night, or on the East Coast at least, in the last 10-15 minutes of the show. And the sketch with uh, Tina Fey, where she's the census taker, and, and Betty White is the the woman in her apartment, is one is real, still one of my funny one of my favorite sketches, one of the funniest. It's one of the best overall episodes I, I think in the history of the show. And that's funny enough. I think I want to say that was actually the first time she had ever hosted. I could be wrong, but I want to say it was. And it also, uh, uh, the maybe one of the few episodes I would rank above it. I think the best episode ever. Part of this is me as a sports person, but I, I honestly think that Peyton Manning's episode back in two thousand seven was maybe the best, where he throws the football and he hits the kid in the head. That's one of them. Uh, uh, or the locker room sketch with Will Forte. It's hysterical. But, uh, um, again, I, I, the other thing, Betty White, I think, set a Guinness World Record for, like, I forget what the record was exactly, but perhaps the oldest person still working on television. She was, she, after SNL, she did Hot in Cleveland, of which I watched the first season and a half, maybe, and then the occasional episode. She did that show until I think she was 93. 
and still smart as a whip. I there is an entire. You really want to kill two hours and make make uh, two hours two great hours of your life? Go to YouTube and look up Betty White Craig Ferguson, and there is. I'd watched it. I'd watched this well before she passed. There is a nearly two-hour-long compilation of her on the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson, which is one of the, which is perhaps the most underrated late-night television show of all time, and, and not just her interviews, but some of the things she did where she'll show up as just these great bits. She'll show up as you know someone who worked at the Genius Bar at Apple, or someone who was an oil executive. And uh, just as herself as these people, and uh, one of the funny, one of the funniest lines, uh, Betty, wh why are you, uh, you know, for example, a uh, working at the Genius Bar? Oh, Craig, I needed some cash, and and just the, it's just a great bit, and it's so funny. Um, so I am just uh, grateful. Again, not a sports figure, but I am grateful. And even, even though some people say it's, you know, I've heard it, and yeah, it is. Uh, to an extent, somewhat cruel that, you know, she died, I think it was like 17 days before her 100th birthday. Yeah, but how lucky were we to have Betty White for over 99 years? How fortunate were we? Seriously, is there a more beloved human being? And, and, I, and again, I think part of that is, you know, you might say quality over quantity, which is true, it's, it's, uh, it's absolutely fair, but the fact that we got to have such a wonderful hysterically funny, positive person for that long and so much longer than the average life. And she kept making an impact as uh, life had gone on. So I'm, I'm just, uh, so I'm not, well, look, we're, we're sad. We're all sad that she's gone, but I'm just grateful that, that we had Betty White for 99 years. We are very, very fortunate. And uh, so that's the thing. There is uh, there was another person this week who passed. Not uh, nobody's. I, I would say is as beloved as Betty White. But uh, uh, another uh, famous figure. This one definitely a sports figure, and that was Dan Reeves, who passed away at the age of seventy-seven. Uh, it, may, it may have been seventy-eight, as a matter of fact. I I, I could be wrong, but he passed. He apparently had been fighting dementia for the last few years. So uh, you, you talk about wanting to someone to uh, go quickly and just kind of be out of their misery. And so I, Dan Reeves, you know, you, you don't want uh, the, the people you care for to suffer. As for his professional career, well, he started, uh, first off, he was a player, of course. He played for the Dallas Cowboys. He was a halfback for some very good Cowboy teams. He didn't have incredible stats and is not a Hall of Famer in that sense, but played eight seasons with the Cowboys at halfback. Some very strong teams from 1965 through 1972 behind great quarterbacks like Don Meredith, Craig Morton, and of course, Roger Staubach. Helped lead the Cowboys to a Super Bowl title uh, the win in Super Bowl six over the Miami Dolphins. They reached the Super Bowl, Super Bowl five against the Colts, and lost. He also, uh, probably the big one, 
as a player, he actually threw, as a halfback, threw a touchdown pass in ice uh, in the second ice bowl, which is what we know is the, the most famous ice bowl, the one in Green Bay in the 67-68 season, uh, the NFL, still NFL, what today would be considered the NFC championship game that I believe gave the Packers the lead before, of course, Bart Starr uh, came back with the quarterback sneak from inside the one-yard line that led the Packers to victory and eventually to a Super Bowl title for the second straight year. As a coach, though, that's where Dan Reeves made his mark, was, was as a head coach. He coached three different teams for 23 years uninterrupted. He was he never had a gap year as a head coach. He was also an assistant under, I believe, under Tom Landry for quite some time after his retirement So for some of those great Cowboy teams in the 70s and, I believe, into 1980. Uh, who They won another championship under Staubach in the 77 and 78 season. Went to the Super Bowl a few more times against the Steelers twice. But as a head coach, he was... Excellent. Really, I would say one of the most underrated, maybe the most underrated head coach in the history of the NFL. And that's saying that despite him never winning a Super Bowl in the NFL, although it does make sense, that's why he's maybe considered such an, or I would consider him such an underrated coach. So he took over the Broncos in 1981. This is pre-John Elway. Elway was drafted in 83. 81, they probably still had Craig Morton at quarterback, I would think. They had reached the Super Bowl four years earlier and lost to the Cowboys. They'd never won the Super Bowl before. Uh, in 81, Reeves led them to a, a 10-win season. Eventually, Elway gets in in 83. And it's what he did with John Elway that made him that made his biggest mark. He helped lead the Broncos to the Super Bowl in the 1986 season, the 1988 season, and the 1989 season, three AFC championship, that uh, three AFC championships in four years, something that's very rarely been done. Although they did lose all three of the Super Bowls, and none of them were really that close. The first one they lost to the Giants, 39 to 20. The second one they lost to uh, what is now known as the Washington Football Team, 42 to 10. And the third one, they lost to the San Francisco 49ers 55-10. to Now, that being said, people talk about how the Buffalo Bills lost four straight Super Bowls. You may, you may have seen there's a great 30-for-30, 30 30, four falls of Buffalo. But what is you know just as impressive as that is set, which is what is really more impressive that, than that is saddening, is that the Buffalo Bills made the Super Bowl four years in a row. No team in in the history of the NFL has ever reached four consecutive Super Bowls. Even if the Bills lost four straight, no one, not the Patriots, not the 49ers, not the Cowboys, not the Packers, not the Giants, not the Bears, Steelers, nobody has ever reached the Super Bowl four consecutive years except for the Buffalo Bills. And Dan Reeves got the Broncos three times in four years, which is uh, which is a rarity. So, but of course, because he didn't win, eventually there was turmoil. He was forced out. 
perhaps had to do with John Elway, who of course did eventually win two Super Bowls with Mike Shanahan at the end of his career. One of those, however, was over Dan Reeves. Dan Reeves, a Georgia native, uh, after being forced out from the Broncos after 12 seasons there, went to the Giants in 1993, and in his first year there, and he was succeeding Bill Parcells, which is, I believe he directly succeeded Bill Parcells, which is, I mean, that's a, that's a tough that's a tough ask for a guy who is one of the best coaches ever. And on top of that, we find had an even bigger influence, we realize now, considering he mentored Bill Belichick. So Reeves went into the Giants in 93, and again, a, str- a struggling team that had, this turned out to be Lawrence Taylor's final year, turned out to be Michael Strahan. It was Michael Strahan's rookie year. Phil Sims was declining. They still had that whole QB controversy with Sims and Hostetler. And the Giants actually went 11-5 and and reached the divisional round. They did not get... So Reeves won Coach of the Year that year. The first time he'd ever won Coach of the Year. He never had in, in Denver. However, in the next three years, the Giants would not get back to the playoffs. And so he was let go. And in 1997, the Georgia native Reeves was hired by the Atlanta Falcons to be their head coach. Now, they only made the playoffs, I believe, twice, maybe three times in his seven or so seasons as the head coach of the Atlanta Falcons. But in his second season, the Falcons went 14-2, and he won Coach of the Year. And it also really says something when, I mean, all due respect to Chris Chandler, but Chris Chandler was the quarterback for that Falcon team, and they won 14 games in a 16-game season. And even then, they were still the second seed. People remember that team, of course, for Jamal Anderson and you know the the, the Dirty Bird celebration, and really the the culmination of that team's season resulted in resulted from a more infamous moment when Gary Anderson missed a field goal for the first time in two years in the NFC Championship game for the Minnesota Vikings. But the Falcons, lo and behold, in Minneapolis, against one of the most dominant offenses ever, maybe the most dominant offense ever, uh, of Randall Cunningham and Robert Smith in the backfield with Chris Carter and a rookie, and an insane rookie named Randy Moss at, at wide receiver, the Falcons somehow march back down the field, down a touchdown, tie the game, won in overtime, and pulled off a huge upset punching their ticket to the Super Bowl against the Denver Broncos. Now, Dan Reeves goes back to the Super Bowl, plays the Broncos. They do lose 34-19, but that team even reaching the Super Bowl was something believed to have been perhaps impossible. It was the first time in their 32, 32-I believe, year history, or at least 30-year history, that they had reached even reached the Super Bowl, and now they're still waiting to win. So I, so Reeves for his career, 23 seasons. went In the regular season, he went 190, 165, and 2. He went 11-9 in the postseason. And somehow, somehow, he is one of two retired coaches... With over 200 combined wins, the other the other two 
the other two that are still active being Bill Belichick and Andy Reid. Somehow he is one of only two retired coaches with over 200 combined wins who is not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And the other is Marty Schottenheimer, who is also passed and also should be in the Hall of Fame. And I don't, I don't know why it took so long. I mean, we were talking about John Madden, of course, last week. And thank goodness John Madden lived a pretty long life, lived to be 85. Now, to be fair, I mean, they elected him at 70. He should have been at, you know, you expect to live to, to 70 anyway, Hope you hope. But, uh, yeah, John Madden took way too long to be inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, at least as a coach. He went in as a broadcaster in 2002. He would have been, let's see, 66. But he'd been, he'd been broadcasting for a little over 20 years. He finally went in as a coach in 2006. He was 70 years old. And well, he may have, been, may have been 69, I'm not sure. But he was 69 or 70 years old. And he had not coached in 28 years. And he had the highest win percentage, or the second highest win percentage in NFL history, and the highest of anyone uh, with over a decade of, uh, uh, with over a decade's experience as a head coach. So, it's a wonder now why Dan Reeves is not in the hall is not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And it's unfortunate that if and when he does go in, it'll be after he's passed. But he. Better get in, and the sooner the sooner the better. But uh, really, a, a a credit to him, a phenomenal career. Uh, from what I've heard, a a phenomenal person, and a, a life well lived. And he's fortunately out of his uh, his suffering. We will take a break. We'll come back. And we are going to talk about Antonio Brown. So that's, you think these conversations are fun. They certainly are. When we return here on Sports in the Waiting Room. We are back, and right now, we are going to discuss Antonio Brown. Now, obviously, we know what happened this past weekend in East Rutherford with... Brown walking off the field against the Jets. Bruce Arians has his last game with the Buccaneers. I'm not sure if they've officially released him yet, but that should be coming. Uh, one of the things people have discussed in the wake of this incident is Brown's mental state, specifically his mental state since Vontez Burfick's very dirty hit on him in the uh, 2015 playoffs calendar year 2016. I want to go over a timeline. I, I've made a timeline of some of the controversial things done by Antonio Brown. And I don't know whether it's a result of mental illness. It could be. I believe there is something wrong with the man, as I believe many people would. I believe many people would agree with me regarding that. As to whether it's football related, I don't know. As far as I know, that is the only concussion he has ever had. It's that's that's the only concussion I believe I could find. But that really is beside the point here. 
we're going to talk about the incidents and look, the man clearly should be judged in some way for some of the things he's done, but I think we also need to find someone needs to find the someone in the league needs to find the reasoning for these actions. Because no rational person does these things. And, I I mean, you, you, I, I would hope that only someone with mentally ill tendencies would do some of the things that he has done, and I'm not even referring to this in particular, but I'm I'm referring more to the stu- to the stuff. At least he's he's allegedly done off the field, uh, just because I, I hope that there's a reason for people to do bad things, and that is maybe just they don't know any better. Uh, but here here are some things that have happened over the last ten years on and off the field with Antonio Brown that have either caused some controversy or have maybe made a case for uh, his uh, potential uh, mental disorder, whatever he might have. We'll start with 2012. Ryan Clark, the then uh, Steelers safety, alleges that Brown shouted at then Steelers defensive coordinator Dick LeBeau and also yelled at players and said, quote, don't touch me, I'm the franchise, unquote. Now, again, this is before the concussion. So, I mean, let's make that part of it. Not to say that the concussion did did cause any mental issues. Not to say that he even does necessarily have any mental issues, although the signs seem to point that way. But this came before the concussion, and also in 2014, you may remember when Antonio Brown kicked a punter in the face. Now, he got him with the, the, the bottom of his foot. He was in midair. Yeah, he was returning a punt, and he leapt up and kind of push-kicked with the, with the bottom of his foot. Cleveland Browns punter Spencer Lanning in the face mask. Uh, somehow, I don't believe he was. Somehow, I do not believe he was ejected from that game. I don't believe he was suspended either. Somehow, uh, not to mention this is also this is not like you know Lanning was crouching down to make the tackle. It Brown saw him and clearly he intended to to kick him there. So I and he probably would have scored a touchdown. He didn't have to kick him. He didn't. Ha- he wasn't going through him in order to get to the end zone. There was a clear lane to the end zone without that. But anyway, there is in the 15-16 season. There is the hit. This so dangerous. This dangerous, dangerous hit by Vontez Perfect in the wild card game in the in the playoffs between the Steelers and the Bengals. Violent. Horrible collision. Uh, and of course, perfect, recognized by many as one of the dirtiest players in the history of the league, even for this era. Uh, well, regardless of era, really. So, anyway, he has the concussion. He returns the next year. Whatever effects uh, those things have, I, I don't know. 
And he did a couple of things. One of them was, this is not necessarily, you know, uh, so, something that something with a disorder would do, but I mean, he, uh, he twerked for a touchdown dance. He yeah, quote-unquote twerked. It was a bit of a suggestive dance. He, he did receive perhaps a an excessive uh, fine for what he did, not to say that what he did was right, but that's not really the big thing that happened in 2016. The bigger thing was when the Steelers won a divisional round game in Kansas City, and Brown, despite the protests of Ben Roethlisberger and Ramon Foster, and perhaps among others, decided to post... Decided to put up Mike Tomlin's Mike Tomlin's post post game speech on Facebook Live, uh, despite not only the protests of those players, but uh, dis- but despite NFL rules prohibiting such things, that's not an intelligent thing to do, at least not without the discretion uh, or, or approval of uh, the coach, let alone the league. Two thousand seven, because God knows that one of the most private places in the world is an NFL locker room. And Tomlin said some things that were perhaps not supposed to have been heard. Not that they were terribly offensive, but not perhaps not something you really wanted to hear in public. 2017, Brown throws a cooler and yells at coaches after not being targeted by Ben Roethlisberger, in particular on one play. This was against the Ravens, I believe. 2018. He is benched by the Steelers after arguing with Ben Roethlisberger and skipping practices leading up to his Week 17 game with the Bengals. And worse, he, I believe this was before the season actually, but in 2018, he tossed furniture out of his 14th floor apartment window, nearly hitting a 22-month-old child. He was then he was later ticketed for driving over 100 miles an hour. Two incredibly dangerous things for which I am stunned that he was neither jailed nor uh, do I believe nor do I believe he was he counseled. Uh, that's uh, I mean for uh, the legal system for years and years has just let has just uh, let this guy get away with so much and not really tried to address the problem. That's also the problem when you try to prosecute famous people. It's it's not, you know, for the most part, they don't really... The problem isn't solved. The problem isn't addressed. More often than not, they'll get off. I, that's how it works. But anyway, 2019... Steelers are trying to trade Antonio Brown. They look like they have a deal in place with the Buffalo Bills. He protests over social media that he's not going to be traded to the Bills. So he nixes that. Then he signs with the Raiders. Then he threatens to retire if he's forced to wear a new helmet. Then he finds a replacement helmet. That replacement helmet is also not up to NFL standards. He then misses more practices. He is then fined by Raiders general manager Mike Mayock for unexcused absences and missing practices. Brown, in another dumb thing to do, posted the letter from Mike Mayock telling him of those fines to Instagram. 
The next day, Brown confronts Mike Mayock. He allegedly calls him a cracker. And he allegedly threatens to hit him. He later apologizes, but because the Raiders void guaranteed money in his contract, Brown publicly demands his release. He eventually is released, and then we see a video where he's jumping up and down in his backyard yelling, I'm free! Then he's also accused of not only sexual assault, but rape by his trainer, Brittany Taylor, in a case that was not prosecuted. And the reason for, for the lack of prosecution was not necessarily a lack of evidence, but because it was past the statute of limitations, something that has been addressed and overturned in some jurisdictions, the, the idea of statute of limitations. So theoretically, this man could have been, I guess theoretically, if not for the statute of limitations, if this man was guilty, could have been in jail. Brown is also sued by a doctor for over $10,000 in unpaid legal fees. Uh, unpaid medical fees, pardon me. Now we cut to 2020. Brown reportedly destroys a security camera and throws a bicycle at a security guard at his home. He also reportedly attacks a moving truck driver. And now to 2021. He lies about his vaccination status. He settles out of court with his trainer for an undisclosed amount. And now again, does, does that indicate guilt? Some people, again, a number of people have settled out of court in cases that really could be criminal. And that doesn't necessarily mean they are guilty. Doesn't necessarily mean they are innocent. You may remember that Patrick Kane, when he had the accusations against him, Settled out of court. That was for an undisclosed. I believe that was also for an undisclosed account, uh, undisclosed amount. It happens with some people. Doesn't mean it happened. Doesn't mean that they are guilty. Doesn't mean they're not. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes perhaps they just know that this push person will keep pushing, or maybe this person thinks something that happened, or there was a misinterpretation between multiple people. But he did settle out of court. Those are the facts. And now, this, this past weekend. Head coach Bruce Arians, who knew Brown in Pittsburgh, Arians worked in Pittsburgh, tried to get Brown to go into the game, but he refused not once, but twice, which caused Arians to tell Brown to leave. Brown then removes his jersey, his pads, and his shirt, throws his shirt into the stands and walks not behind the end zone, not outside the boundary of the field, but in the end zone. He walks through the end zone, jumps up and down, uh, looks for approval from the crowd, and 
Bruce Arians says he's done with the team. He's played his last game as a Buccaneer. I mean, especially now, now that I read and hear all these things and physically hear all these things, I would have to imagine, and again, it, uh, I'm, look, I'll say here, most notably the, the, uh, the alleged sexual assault and alleged rape, if those are true, I would not say there is an excuse for that, but as I read all of these things, it would make the most logical sense, the most logical explanation would, that would be that this man is mentally ill. Again, that's whether it's brought on by football, whether it's brought on by any collisions, or whether it's or whether he had it uh, long ago, we don't know. But if that is true, even if it's not true, counselors, somebody, the NFL, somebody needs to take care of this man and at least figure out if it is true. And if it is, he needs help. It's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that all of these things could possibly happen and that it could take so long for anyone to really address the problem. And I'm not putting blame on anyone in particular. But someone someone has to do something to see that this man is is taken care of assuming that is the the reason for many of his actions. And uh, really, if, if this is, if it's somehow not the reason, if, it, if, if it's not true and he is apparently coherent from a mental standpoint, then someone will have to figure out how to make him accountable. It's a very, very odd situation, the likes of which I don't think I've ever seen in the NFL, or any, uh, or really any sport, perhaps. And uh, regardless of his, uh, regardless of what he's done, you just hope for uh, the best for the man, you really do. As we go to a bit of a transition, Brown's former teammate Ben Roethlisberger likely plays in his final game at Heinz Field. And now, uh, although Roethlisberger, I will say, of course, Roethlisberger we know has faced multiple sexual assault allegations and has actually settled out of court before. Again, that doesn't necessarily mean guilt, doesn't necessarily mean innocence. The one difference I can say here is we talk about separating the art from the artist, and I think that is a, a thing that we can do. Again, it's not necessarily to even say that Roethlisberger is uh, guilty of such, uh, such conduct, but uh, we separate the art from the artist. You can separate Ben Roethlisberger's alleged off-field conduct from his on-field play, 
We say this with, uh, honestly, I can say it with some people with the Me Too movement where you can obviously be horribly disgusted by some of the things that the people have done, but you can admire some of the work that they have done. For example, Kevin Spacey, a disturbing individual, obviously, but The Usual Suspects, great film. But I separate the art from the artist, and, and that's, that's how this thing goes. So that's why I just want to talk about Ben Roethlisberger and his career in general. Because he has certainly accomplished a lot over the course of his career. As he has likely played in his final game at Heinz Field, the Steelers defeated the Cleveland Browns 26-14 Monday night. Uh, big Najee Harris run to end the game. He had 188 yards on the ground. Another guy who can make a good case for Offensive Rookie of the Year as uh, we'll talk about Jamar Chase a little later on. And Roethlisberger, a guy who some people may have thought, in terms of his on-field play, might have worn out his welcome the last couple of years, has not performed that well. But it's a Steeler team that, again, is not only above 500 and with their heads above water, he's never, he's never finished under 500, and if this is his last season, never will finish under 500 for his career, uh, the Steelers still have a shot at the playoffs. Theoretically, big this could, this upcoming weekend could not might not be Big Ben's last game. I will say, despite the fact that they will need, uh, besides a win, which is not the most unrealistic part of it, or, or a, a Charger Raider game that doesn't end in a tie, that's very likely. The big problem is that they'll need the Colts to lose to the Jaguars, which is pretty unlikely. But the Steelers very well, for all we know, the Steelers could be still playing in February. We don't know. Uh, but Roethlisberger for his career, clearly first ballot Hall of Famer, 18 seasons, two Super Bowl championships, three AFC championships, uh, his drive down the field against the Cardinals in Super Bowl 43, perhaps overshadowed, of course, by Santonio Holmes' catch and his MVP winning performance in that Super Bowl, not to mention Heinz Ward winning MVP in the first Super Bowl that they won. But a lot of, pe- a lot of people overlooked the fact that Roethlisberger on that play with Holmes made an incredible throw, made a perfect throw. Outstretched over two, if not three, Cardinal defenders. It's a perfect throw. He leads them down the field. I think they got the ball back with 2 minutes and 37 seconds to play. Down by 3. For really one of the most one of the best Super Bowls ever. He very well could have won MVP of that game. He also, I mean, if if a couple of if like one or two things go differently, he he perhaps wins MVP of the Super Bowl against the Packers in 2011. He's probably, I would say, I'd give him the edge. He's probably the best of the three quarterbacks to come out of maybe the greatest draft class ever, 2004. I know 1983 is going to be up there with you know Elway and Kelly and Marino, among others. But you have four first ballot Hall of Famers in this draft class, three of them quarterbacks, 
You have Ben Roethlisberger. You have Eli Manning, one of only five players to win Super Bowl MVP twice. You have Philip Rivers, who is, aside from maybe Dan Fouts, they're like neck and neck, uh, the best quarterback in the history of the Charger franchise, and one of the more underrated QBs, outstanding regular season quarterback uh, uh, in his of his generation. And then you have, some people forget that he was part of this class, but I would say probably the second best receiver in the history of the NFL and the best one ever to play east of the Bay Area in Larry Fitzgerald. And this pretty much brings the end of an era and the end to an iconic draft class. It's kind of like how we said when John Madden passed, at least to me, one of the best broadcasting teams of all time was now finally gone in total, now, now that uh, Pat Summerall and John Madden are both gone. So this marks the end. Well, this could mark the end. Hey, we very well could be talking in a month about Ben Roethlisberger winning the Lombardi Trophy again. We don't know. We never know. Even though it's unlikely, you never know. But this marks uh, this weekend marks a regular season end to the career of Ben Roethlisberger and a phenomenal career it certainly was. We'll take a break once again, come back and discuss the week of the NFL. We'll talk about the college football playoff and a little bit more here on Sports in the Waiting Room. All right, we're back and we're finally talking about something that actually happened on a field this week. Uh, we'll start with, uh, well, let's just start with the Bears and the Giants and what an embarrassment that game was for the Giants. Uh, Chicago defeats New York 29-3. The defense for the Giants actually was not that bad. Uh, really, they only gave, I, mean, I, I think about, let's see, 16 of the Bear points came off of turnovers. Uh, they had a safety in that game. And then for their first two touchdowns, they only had to drive a combined 26 yards. They had to go only two yards. I mean, uh, Mike Glennon fumbling the football on the first play from scrimmage was all you really needed to know to, to figure out how this game was going to go. Uh, neither of these teams were even playing for anything, but obviously uh, something terrible for the Giants, especially with Matt Na- I mean, the Bears are not a good team, and Matt Nagy is apparently on the way out the door despite this outcome. Uh, Glennon turns over the football four times, two picks, two fumbles. Uh, part of that is also a, a poor offensive line. The Bears, I will say, did not actually have an offense, a lot of offensive production. Mentioned that before. Giant defense was okay. I think the Bears had about 250 yards of total offense. But again, big problem was turn. Big problem for the Giants was turnovers in this game, and the Bears win it by a score of 29 to three. The one upside you can say for the Giants is that they finally decided to give the ball to Saquon Barkley. They handed him the ball 21 yards, uh, 21 times for 102 yards. It's probably the most action they have given him. This year, or probably since he got injured last year and was done for the season, they've kind of coddled him a bit, which is something you can't do with a team that is not really going anywhere anyway. Just see what you have. And that's the other thing. I didn't understand why Jake Fromm was not playing in this game. 
Obviously, he is not the quarterback of the future. We saw that when the Giants were blown out by the Eagles, but we've seen a lot more of Mike Glennon, not only for his career, but with the Giants in particular. The Giants pulled from in the third quarter, whereas I would say Glennon has actually worked, looked worse than Fromm has, albeit that's not a very high bar to set. So I don't really understand that one. It's going to be interesting to see what Week 18 is going to be like for the Bears as they head to Minnesota with Nagy. Apparently it looks like he's going to coach his last game with Chicago. Joe Judge lost his cool quite a bit in the post-game press conference. I was actually fortunate enough today uh, to go on uh, with my friend uh, Mike Phillips, who I knew at SMY, and uh, was able to be on his podcast. We talked a lot of football, and we talked about uh, we talked about Joe Judge. He played me a few clips that I had not heard before from Judge in the post-game presser, and it's a guy who this is kind of his Ben McAdoo moment, really, because. Of course, you may remember Ben McAdoo a couple of years ago. It looked like he was probably going to keep his job after two years with the Giants, but then he sat Eli Manning for Geno Smith, which was deemed a bit disrespectful by not only by the franchise, the fan base, but by the franchise itself. John Mara said it himself. And that was the point where you thought, regardless of on-field performance, that's the uh, that's where you've really turned off the fan base, and, and, and public opinion will shoot down quickly. The same may go for Joe Judge after uh, this week. He had been talking about players apparently coming into his office and begging to return next season, even players that had left the Giants already, which, I mean, it's not to say it's impossible that that's happened, but it seems with the state of the organization, the state of the roster, that's highly unlikely. And just perhaps even denial. Judge was in a really defensive mood he was. At, I've never seen him or heard him remotely uncoordinated, un, unfocused in uh, talking to the media since taking over the Giants' head coaching job before the 2020 season. Uh, this is the first time I've seen it, but it may be a guy who's un- who is unfortunately cracked and that might ultimately mean his downfall with the Giants organization on the opposite side of that Green Bay Packers clinch the uh, not only the north but clinch the best record in the NFC and home field throughout the NFC playoffs with a 37 to 10 blowout win over the Minnesota Vikings Sean Mannion was in at quarterback for Minnesota with Kirk Cousins out. I believe they were technically still... Yeah, actually, yes. They were still in the playoff contention as this game began. Truth is, they would have lost this game even if Kirk Cousins was a quarterback. But 
what probably would have been a lot closer. Biggest issue this year for the Vikings and last year, which they really did not address in the draft, uh, is their defense. And they were god-awful, especially when you have Aaron Rodgers going up against you and Devontae Adams. And it's uh, the Vikings are maybe in limbo going into next season. Packers win. They end up with the best record in the NFC. And if it had meant anything regarding home field advantage in the Super Bowl, the Packers would have already clinched that. Uh, they've already clinched the best record in football uh, for the year. A dominant performance. They can have an extra week. Off. Really, they're going to have, at least for their starters, they will have two full weeks off and not have to play for anything next week against the Detroit Lions. Cardinals still trying to make their case. They still have a shot at the NFC West and as high as the two seed. They win 25 to 22 in Arlington against the Cowboys, making a major statement, possibly setting up a playoff preview. Kyler Murray was pretty good, 26 of 38, 263 yards and a pair of touchdowns. So the Cardinals beat a proven, at least a proven regular season team in the Dallas Cowboys on the road, and if the Cardinals do not end up winning the division, they need a win and a Rams loss against the 49ers, which is possible, as the 49ers are still playing for potentially for a playoff spot this weekend and are a fairly good team, but if the Cardinals win against the Seahawks, something they definitely should do, and the Rams lose to the 49ers, the Cardinals win the NFC West, and then if they also get a Buccaneers loss, they clinch the number two seed. But if the Rams win, uh, or but the point is, if the Cardinals don't end up winning the division, Buccaneers should defeat the Panthers. Odds are you are going to see this matchup again, the Cardinals in Arlington, and that'll be a probably a pretty fired-up Cowboy team after this past week. Keep talking the last five, six weeks about Dak Prescott's slump, or alleged slump. I don't know if he really has one. But it's going to be a test for both of these teams in a couple of weeks. Meanwhile, the Rams narrowly survive a Baltimore Ravens team with not Lamar Jackson at quarterback, not... Tyler Huntley at quarterback, but Josh Johnson at quarterback, who has played adequately, I would say. But the fact that they only won this game by one was very surprising, even for it being in Baltimore. Matt Stafford looked good, 26 of 35, 309 yards, and two touchdowns. Maybe the biggest news, Cooper Cup breaks Isaac Bruce's franchise single-season receiving record, over 1,700 receiving yards, which is insane. And more importantly, he did it in 16 games. A lot of people talked about years ago about Roger Maris breaking Babe Ruth's record, but he did it in more than 154 games, which is what the season was when Ruth was playing. Tampa Bay Buccaneers survived the New York Jets by a score of 28-24. to Tom Brady drives the Buccaneers 93 yards in under two minutes after the Jets fail on fourth and two at the Tampa 7. Jets had a four-point lead, could have kicked a field goal and tried to make the Buccaneers march down the field anyway. Now, the truth is, if, if the Jets 
take the field goal there, and it's a chip shot field goal. If they take it there, Brady still probably marches them down the field because then, unless there's something wrong with the kickoff, he's only got to drive them 75 yards, and this game probably goes to overtime, at which point it's a toss-up, probably leaning towards Tampa. But I like the call. I like the fact that they went for fourth and two from the Tampa Bay 7. It had been years of frustration for the Jets of Tom Brady, uh, with Tom Brady. We all knew that. You know, the, the defending champions, the Jets really aren't playing for anything. They're just kind of playing for their pride. They had kept in this game for so long. They had a three-point lead. And it, it wasn't a terrible idea to just try to go for the win right there. Now, they decided to, to go with a QB sneak or at least Zach Wilson decided to go with a QB sneak, which I think was a bad idea just from a logistical standpoint. When it's fourth and two, and Zach Wilson is a quarterback as small as he is compared to other quarterbacks, generally I'd go for a sneak if it was fourth and a yard to go. And also if it was a larger quarterback, Tom Brady, for example, is a bigger guy. He could, he could get away with a sneak there. But when it's 4th and 2, and Wilson is a smaller guy who can't push the pile as much, it's not the best idea. Now, Robert Sala, after the game, said that there was a miscommunication and that Mike LaFleur, Matt LaFleur's brother and the coordinator, told Wilson that he had the option to sneak, although the, the play was supposed to be an end-around to Braxton, Braxton Berrios, who's played very well, by the way. And according to the video, I believe that it would have been a first down. It would have probably put away the game. So, that, that, it's kind of a good example of, of how the Jets season has worked. They, they could have the personnel. They could have a lot of things go right but ultimately that communication will have to be changed a bit. That's not their biggest issue, of course, but the communication will be a factor as they head into this final week in Orchard Park against the Bills. Last one, game of the week, I would say. Bengals top the Chiefs 34-31 on a buzzer-beater field goal. They were down 28-17 at halftime. Chiefs put up 28 on the Bengals in the first half. The Cincinnati defense responded immensely by only allowing three points in the second half, and even then that was, I think, fairly late in the fourth quarter. They dominated the Chiefs' offense in the latter 30 minutes. Bengals get the ball with about six minutes left in a tie game. Burrow marches them down the field. They do a Burrow at 446 yards in this game. Burrow does a great job of just holding the football for a long time, keeping it away from Patrick Mahomes, and with about a minute, I think it was inside the two-minute warning, they got they got it first and goal. Uh, Jamar Chase, by the way, incredible game, makes his case for Offensive Rookie of the Year. 11 catches, 266 yards, and three touchdowns, and a lot of that, a lot of that wasn't even necessarily the deep ball. A lot of it was just his speed coming off of shorter passes, although Burrow did work well with the deep ball in this game. But the interesting thing here at the end was the Bengals deciding to go for it on fourth and goal from the one-yard line 
which I didn't understand at all. I, I, I understand that you're trying to keep the ball away from Patrick Mahomes, but it's not like you're leading already. It's a tie game, so it doesn't make sense. They go for it on fourth and goal. They get the benefit of a, pen, of a penalty. Uh, they go for I think they go for it again later and somehow draw another penalty. I don't know. It didn't make sense to me. But the Bengals ultimately get away with it, and they do win 34-31. to This happened, something similar to this happened this year. When the, earlier this year, when the Bills lost to the Titans, they decided to go for it instead of kick a chip shot field goal, and then they lost by three. And that ultimately could be what costs the Bills, I mean, if things really go wrong on Sunday, the division, but ultimately what could cost them the number one seed in the AFC. Things would be a lot different right now if if that had, if they'd won in overtime, but if the the Bills had kicked that field goal, perhaps. So a lot of the aggressive play calling, I really don't understand. You really have to to pick and choose. But a really exciting week. The Bengals could still end up with the one seed with a win, and I think a Titan and Chief loss again, unlikely, but still. And then you have the Bills. Believe it or not, the New England Patriots could still end up with a one seed if they, I mean, a lot of things would have to happen. First off, they'd have to get a Buffalo loss and a win just to clinch the division, even though that's quite unlikely. And they'd still need a, uh, I think, a Titan and a Chief loss. I think if the Bengals won, they could still, I take it back, no. No, yeah, if the, if the Bengals won, I think they still could win the division. Uh, still could win the one seed. But... It's very fascinating to see that New England still has a shot at the one seed going into the final week, even if it is a long shot. We'll take a break here. We'll come back, talk about the college football playoff, and we'll talk about a few other, a couple of the other major bowl games and a few more things here on Sports in the Waiting Room. All right, college football playoff turned out to be really just more of the same when you think about it. Alabama and Georgia will meet again. Alabama topped Cincinnati by a score of 27-6. Bryce Young really only needed to throw in the red zone in this game. 17-28, 181 yards, three touchdowns, one interception. Would have figured he'd be the star of this game, but no, again for Alabama, it's the run game. And surprisingly, of all people, it's the grad student Brian Robinson who has the game of his life with over 200 yards on the ground. The Alabama defense was dominant which it had not been at times this year. Uh, six sacks of Desmond Ritter, although uh, give Cincinnati credit, they did not turn over the football, but their offense was just that uh, poor in terms of gaining yardage. 218 yards of total offense. Alabama alone had, Alabama had 301 yards on the ground alone. Again, 200 from, I think about 201 from Brian Robinson. They also dominated the time of possession. Uh, really, Alabama's skill set, they played to it perfectly. Over 33 minutes of time of possession under 27 for Cincinnati. Alabama, I'd have to imagine Alabama is going to win this thing again. Uh, Georgia, meanwhile, defeats Michigan 34 to 11. Stetson Bennett, Stetson Bennett went 20 of 30 for 313 yards and three touchdowns, and didn't even throw. I mean, that's how that's how good the team was. He didn't even throw the final touchdown. Uh, Michigan, three turnovers in this game, surrendered four sacks, and did not have nearly enough success on the ground. 91 yards in total, 3.4 yards per carry, to supplement 
the passing game. Now, when you have 3.4 yards per carry on the ground, that can work if your passing game is good enough. And unfortunately for Michigan, it is not, at least not with Cade McNamara. I will give Cade, Cade McNamara a ton of credit for being the quarterback who finally got Michigan to the college football playoff and managed most of the games pretty well, but not this one. He throws two picks, despite throwing, I believe, few, I, I think more passes than him. J.J. McCarthy actually had, uh, despite Cade McNamara throwing more passes, I believe, uh, J.J. McCarthy ended up with more passing yards and the only passing touchdown of the game, which, uh, again, people have been saying that McCarthy is the future of the program, and that is probably true, although it does bring to an end the careers of uh, quite a number of big Michigan players, most notably Aiden Hutchinson, who was finally declared for the draft. But a credit to Jim Harbaugh for finally reaching the CFP and getting Michigan finally there, and a credit to Luke Fickle in Cincinnati as well for finally getting, uh, not that it was the AAC's fault, but finally getting a non-Power 5 school into the college football playoff. Now, Alabama and Georgia, it obviously should be a much better game than either of these two, and they're two very fine teams. This has nothing to do with um, any lack of neutrality for me, but it's just unfortunate that we have to watch two of the same teams again because it seems like, you know, Georgia hasn't gone that much, but it seems like every year it's just Alabama versus either Georgia, Clemson, or maybe Ohio State. That's what it seems like it usually is when it when it comes to the college football playoff and the championship. And that's, I think, a part of why we need that eight-team, let alone the 16-team playoff, just for, but I also think it's for parity and being able to see non-Power 5 schools get in, schools that go undefeated, schools that deserve to be in just based off their record alone, regardless of their competition, so long as they play in FBS. So I hope they really rush that soon and and that there's an opportunity for for maybe lesser-known or lesser-appreciated football schools to play in the in the playoff. And finally have, the truth is, every undefeated team in the FBS should be able to play, able to play in the playoff. And usually you'll get one or two, maybe. It also, but, but the problem is, usually they come from outside the Power Five conferences, and frankly, usually outside of the SEC, which is clearly favored the most by the CFP and by, and by college football in general. So that's really something that I hope changes very soon. But Alabama should win. Alabama should win again, I'd have to imagine. Georgia's defense is dominant, one of the best in the country, but I don't know how anybody, I don't know how anybody can beat Nick Saban anymore at least at a collegiate level. I don't know. Unless unless you're Clemson, I, I Clemson or maybe uh, maybe LSU. It doesn't really happen anymore. So, there you go. I do want to talk about uh, just a few of the bowls outside the CFP. So, first I want to talk about the Peach Bowl. Uh, Pittsburgh falls to Michigan State 31-21 in Atlanta. 
after a pick six thrown by Davis Bevel in field goal range, Nick Patty broke his collarbone. And, of course, Nick Patty's backup quarterback in the first place, Kenny Pickett, a Heisman finalist who is expected probably to be the first quarterback selected in the draft this year, withdrew from this game in order to prepare for the draft, which I understand from a business standpoint, and I guess just to protect yourself, but it's unfortunate that Pitt goes to a major bowl game, the Peach Bowl, one of the few bowls that's that doesn't just have a commercialized name on it, one of the, one of the bowls that's one of the originals, and not have Kenny Pickett in it. And this game would have been a lot more exciting with him playing. As a matter of fact, Pittsburgh probably would have won if he was in this game. The team only scored 14 points offensively, and really it was a plus 7 when you consider the pick 6 thrown at the end of the game by Bevel. So Pitt had the ball, marched all the way down to the 26-yard line, and then Bevel throws a pick 6. Michigan State ices it and wins. Obviously, it's not a national championship. It's It doesn't matter as much, but it's still something. On the other side, Peyton Thorne made a really good case for himself with a career-high 354 yards and three passing touchdowns for Michigan State. Also a career-high in passes attempted and completed 29 of 50 Michigan State. I mean, for a team that got really blown out by Ohio State and to be able to be kept out of not only the Big Ten Championship game but the college football playoff, that's an impressive victory for them that solidifies a, solid, a great season for them. Gator Bowl. I want to talk about the Gator Bowl. And it wasn't a great game, obviously, but it was just because it's a local thing for me. Rutgers played in this game against number 17 Wake Forest. They fell 38-10. to However, I just find it interesting because Rutgers out of uh, Rutgers is big for local interest here in New Jersey. Rutgers, believe it or not, is the only FBS team in the state of New Jersey, and I believe one of only four in the tri-state area. As a matter of fact, it, well, if you technically count, uh, there's Syracuse, there's Buffalo, and there is UConn. Because unfortunately, college football is not as big in the New York City, New Jersey, tri-state area as it should be, especially considering Rutgers is the birthplace of football. Rutgers-Princeton was the first ever college football game back in 1868. But Rutgers is a program that has transitioned to the Big Ten. They have not had much success, at least in football. Uh, with other sports, they certainly have, basketball being one of them. But... It's a program that has suffered, especially with the collapse of the old Big East and with the departure of Greg Schiano. But I just find it fascinating because there are so many there are so many great players that come out of New Jersey that not only go on to success in college football but in the NFL. You have Jabril Peppers and Rashawn Gary alone are both from Paramus Catholic in my neck of the woods in Bergen County. And, I mean, you have so many guys coming out of Bergen Catholic and Don Bosco here in Bergen, and a number of schools in Monmouth County that are really good. 
a lot of really strong, like nationally ranked high school pro uh, uh, high school programs here. And Rutgers doesn't tend to keep a lot of those guys in state. They usually leave and go off to, you know, Michigan, Ohio State, you know, Big Ten schools. Uh, as we've seen from Jabril Peppers and from Rashawn Gary, those are the two guys I, I think of in the first place. I I went to a high school with a, a, a really good player named Andrew Trombetti who ended up playing at Notre Dame and didn't really hasn't really gotten any time in the NFL. He was hurt, but played with the Chicago Bears. And you know that that's that's the thing. Rutgers doesn't get a lot of that local talent. I do know someone from around here. I do know, know someone who was actually going to be playing at Rutgers, which is pretty cool. So it's nice to see they finally get some local guys. But that's something they need to improve upon. This game and this season, and going back to last season when they brought back Greg Schiano, I think is a great restart for them. They went. They ended up going five and seven this year, which did not make them bowl eligible, and they were only in this game because they were a replacement team due to a COVID outbreak. Uh, but the fact that it was only twenty to ten at halftime for a team that reached the ACC championship game in Wake Forest, ranked seventeenth in the country. It was 20 to 10 at halftime. It was 23 to 10 after the third quarter. Uh, Wake Forest blew it open with 15 in the fourth. But uh, that really shows that the program is really starting to trend in an upward direction. And it's a great culture change with Shiano. But Wake Forest, obviously, becoming a a really good program. It was maybe an off year for the powerhouses of the ACC, the Florida State, the Miami. Virginia Tech, Boston College to an extent, I would say, is one. So Wake Forest and Pitt, maybe not the two teams you'd expect to be in the ACC title game, but Wake Forest obviously is making good strides. Because maybe even last year you probably wouldn't even say that Wake Forest was the best team in the state of North Carolina in terms of college football. You'd probably say UNC was. But Wake Forest certainly making strides. Rose Bowl. A Rose Bowl said by many people to have saved the New Year's weekend from awful college football after that After that, really tough-to-watch CFP, both semifinals. Ohio State 48, Utah 45. I guess C.J. Stroud was mad about the Heisman vote because he, wow, you talk about going off, 37 of 46, 573 yards, six touchdowns. And then Smith and Jigba for Ohio State sets the program bowl game record with 347 receiving yards to go along with three touchdowns in a fantastic game. I didn't watch all of it. I wasn't home all day, but I caught the end of it, and it was a thrilling game out in Pasadena. Uh, I was also surprised. I mean, it makes some sense now when you realize that Utah has only been in the big, uh, the Pac-12 for... Like a decade or, or or something like that. I was, but I was surprised to find that it was the first time Utah had ever played in the Rose Bowl. So a good showing for them. They finished at 11th. Ohio State at sixth. Yeah. Moving on to a couple more things. One, uh, the NBA. Dirk Nowitzki is having his number 41 retired by the Dallas Mavericks tonight. As I record this, uh, perhaps the most important single athlete in the history of North Texas sports. Also, because a part of it is 
translating the game. One of the first guys, I think, really to translate the game from Europe and from Germany. And on top of that, I would say, look, Dallas, you think of North Texas, you think of Dallas, and you think of sports, you think of the Cowboys, first and foremost, of course. So it, even though the Dallas Cowboys have had perhaps more talented, more influential players on the history of a league, I would say Emmett Smith and Roger Staubach in particular, then a number of uh, great players uh, from Harvey Martin, Randy White, uh, Ed Tuttle-Jones, Troy Aikman, Michael Irvin, Jason Witten, uh, uh, boy, uh, Deion Sanders from uh, Larry Little, uh, a number of, uh, Larry Allen, pardon me, a number of great all-time players for the, uh, Drew Pearson, I, uh, Bob Hayes, Tony Dorsett, list goes on and on. number of great all-time players for the Cowboys, uh, but I would say very few people, not just in the history of North Texas sports, but in the history of sports in general, have very few people have carried the weight of an entire franchise on their shoulders as much as Dirk Nowitzki has. In many ways, uh, he did for North Texas what Peyton Manning did for the state of Indiana. Some people may forget that before... Well, before the, the Colts won the Super Bowl, before the well, before the Indianapolis Colts won the Super Bowl, let's clarify that. Before the Colts won the Super Bowl, before Peyton Manning was winning MVPs, before all of that, before 1998, Indiana was not only a basketball state, it was the basketball state. Known very well for it. Known for the Pacers, known for... IU, known for Indiana State when Larry Bird was there, at Purdue, Notre Dame, etc., etc., and Peyton Manning transformed Indiana into, in many ways, a football state. Dallas was cowboy and football country almost exclusively. Then uh, the Stars came in in the mid-90s. They won the Stanley Cup in 1999, though I would not say... I, I, not as many people appreciate hockey as they really should. And so uh, the Stars didn't really get the appreciation that they perhaps should have. Mike Madano's a great player. I don't know if he's a, a, as transformative a player as Dirk Nowitzki was or is, etc., etc. Um, and the other thing is, Dirk not only got the Mavericks more respect in Dallas, uh, but also throughout Texas because Texas was dominated in basketball by the Spurs from with some of these iconic players, David Robinson, Tim Duncan, Tony Parker, Manu Ginobili, earlier George Gervin, and later on Kawhi Leonard. Then you have the Rockets with Hakeem Olajuwon, uh, Ralph Sampson earlier on, uh, Clyde Drexler, Robert Ory, and later James Harden for Houston. And I would say Tracy McGrady maybe is part of that too. Uh, and uh, Chris Paul for a little while. And a lot of these iconic players, Dirk Nowitzki was the guy who got the Mavericks' respect in Dallas. People forget, he may have trans transformed the history of the game when you consider, I mean, without him, the Mavericks certainly, the Mavericks don't even reach the final, but the Mavericks certainly do not defeat the Miami Heat in the 2011 final 
in LeBron's first year in Miami, maybe the most maybe the most anticipated team ever, and he pushes back their expectations by a year. Not single-handedly. He had Jason Kidd with him. He had uh, Jason Terry. He had Sean Marion with him. But he, Dirk Nowitzki was the guy who pushed back the expectations of that team in that league and turned them on their head. And, I, I mean, besides maybe Kobe Bryant, I don't know if anybody was a better maybe corner shooter, I would say. I admit, better rainbow shooter, I don't know. But a, a transformative player. As for current NBA news, Kyrie Irving is back. I guess uh, the Nets really... Uh, he's returning against the Pacers. Nets really are desperate if they're bringing him back for four, for like half the season. They're, they're hoping about five and a half months. But you remember that is minus home games. He's still not... As far as we know, he's still not vaccinated. So that's minus home games. Can't play in Brooklyn. Can't play at any against any against the Knicks at Madison Square Garden. And he can't play in San Francisco against the Warriors. Those are so New York and San Francisco have those vaccine mandates. And so really, with the Warriors being one of the best teams in the NBA right now, if you're the Nets, you are for, uh, again, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, pro- or a couple months ago probably, when we found out he was sitting down, that if you're the Nets, you almost hope that, assuming you make the playoffs, part of you hopes that you don't have home court. That you have Kyrie to be able to play more games. And you're really hoping that if you get to the final, or well, if you get deep enough into the playoffs, you don't, or you're hoping you don't have to play the Knicks in the playoffs, and you're hoping that if you get to the final, you don't have to play the Warriors. Because it leaves you in an awkward situation. The Nets are reversing their position, and now Kyrie Irving has to play, and it's a really weird situation. A couple more things in terms of hockey. Uh, Winter Classic this weekend was not uh, the most incredible game. It was 6-4 Blues, but a couple of those goals were scored in uh, garbage time, Really, when it looked like it was out of hand, at least early in the third, Cam Talbot did not play too well for Minnesota. But I will say the pageantry of it, the ceremony, uh, so well handled. It was fantastic to see negative nine degree hockey, the coldest game in NHL history. A great crowd, great enthusiasm from the Minnesota Wild, uh, the state of Minnesota, the you know the quote unquote state of hockey. I loved the way they set everything up. I mean, with like eight ranks, I think like or at least six ranks out in center field, target field. I've never been, but it's a, it's supposed to be a beautiful ballpark. And the whole way they set that up with, they have Justin Morneau, Joe Maurer, Tony Oliva. Oh, I forget who the fourth. I forget who the other person was for the Twins. It wasn't. I don't know. It was Ken Herbeck. Well, Ken Herbeck was one of them. I take it back. And I don't know if, not Bly Levin, I don't think. But they had people from every every sport for, uh, for Minnesota, which was awesome. It's one of the few places in the U.S. that has uh, pro sports in all four leagues in the area. Uh, Miku, uh, Miko Koivu and uh, Nicholas Backstrom 
there. Just a really great atmosphere, and I would have loved to have been on hand, even if I looked like Tom Coughlin in Green Bay. Last thing, uh, Jonathan Bernier, done for the year for the Devils after right hip surgery this week. I will say, look, Mackenzie Blackwood obviously is the guy for them, but that's a difficult injury. Uh, Bernier, a guy who is very seasoned, I believe won the Cup with the Kings. Uh, Perhaps more importantly, though, Dougie Hamilton is out indefinitely with a broken jaw. Nico Heischer sat with a lower body injury against the Bruins on Tuesday. Uh, Those two players tied for third in team scoring. This is especially difficult for a Devil team that has made great strides, that is not far outside the playoff picture, and uh, stunned the Oilers in OT uh, on Sunday, or yeah, on uh, Sunday or New Year's Eve, Friday, uh, by a score of six to five. New Year's Eve, it, it always it always feels like a Sunday, New Year's Eve, but they won on Friday by a score of six to five to close out their calendar year. Uh, so that does it for them. We'll, I mean, we'll does it for Bernier. We'll see what happens with Hamilton and Heischer. That does it for us. Thank you for sticking with us the entire eighty-five minutes this week. And appreciate it. Happy New Year. And stay tuned here on Sports in the Waiting Room.